Barukatah Yahweh Eloheinu Melech Olam Hamotzi Lechem Min Hares. Blessed are you, Yahweh or Elohim, King of the Universe, who brings forth bread from the earth and gave us Yeshua, the Messiah, who is the bread of life. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. Amen.
greater things. There's no power like the power of Yeshua. So let faith arise. Let all agree. There's no power like the power of Yeshua. And I will believe. Sing it out right now. Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles to page one of your Bibles. The, our portion is Bereshit, and we begin again uh, the teaching of the Torah on the annual cycle. Our first portion begin with Genesis 1. Uh, before I actually get started, uh, let's make a couple of comments about beginning a new annual cycle of teaching the Torah. Um, the Torah, the first five books of Moses, I have always compared to as like the trunk of a tree, a great tree. The roots, of course, are God, and then extending from the trunk of the tree are all the many branches. And uh, the, the Torah serves like a pedestal. It serves like the base. It is the thing that connects spiritually all the ministries that we have back down to the roots. And basically what it comes down to is that it serves as the base principles for everything that we learn in the faith. Uh, when we get caught up in ministry and all the spiritual things that are going on, it's a little bit like sitting on a limb in a great tree. 
And once in a while, you will have someone come up and offer you some fruit. Uh, this, they say, and you say, well, where's this from? Oh, well, this is another teaching. This is another thing that we learn in the faith. And, and you ask, well, what, where did this come from? And going back to the lesson of what Yeshua taught about the fruit of the tree, where he says a good tree will not produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. One of the things that you use as a determinant, whether this is good fruit or not, uh, and giving a spiritual discernment, is to trace back the branches, if you will, that the fruit came from, and see if they go to the trunk of this tree. See if they go back to the Torah. Now, let me, that's the metaphor. Let me give it a little more practical. Any truth uh, that is being espoused as a spiritual truth uh, in our faith, if it doesn't trace back to the Torah, I question whether or not it is really truth that belongs uh, to us. In this first account, you're going to hear the story of two trees, uh, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and one tree you're to eat of and one tree you're not to eat of. And typically when we go out and we try to discern spiritual truth and learning spiritual truth, one of the most fundamental questions that we have to ask is what tree did it come from? And if it came from through the Torah, then we know it's the good tree, the good fruit that we are to have. So I offered that as a opening discussion about as we begin this year's Torah study by simply saying that part of the reason why we study the Torah and we repeatedly study it is it gives us the spiritual definition and basis of our faith. It, it, it lays out the basic principles so that we're able to discern other things as we continue on in and maturing in the faith. And as you all know, in the Messianic movement, we have a scattering of different kinds of teachings and so forth coming from a variety of sources, all claiming to, to some extent that they are the real truth. And I submit to you that each one of you should have the ability to discern whether that is truth or not. And that discernment comes from the basis of what you've learned from the Torah. So we begin our Torah study again to understand these basic things. Now, let me just go one step further. In most Christian teaching, they look at the Bible and as either it is um, uh, literally true or it's an allegory. Uh, in other words, they'll say, hey, well, this is exactly what it is, word for word, and take it literally that way. Or they'll say, well, it's really a picture of something, and they use these two methodologies. When I was in the Christian world, uh, before coming in the Messianic world, that was the way you basically interpreted things. But that is not necessarily the case when we open up the Torah and we begin to learn the Hebrew way of looking at scriptures. That is to say, there are four levels in which that we can view scripture. There is the Peshat, which is the plain sense of the text. That's the meaning of the text, the basic meaning of the text. The second we call the remez. That is the allegory. That's the metaphor. That's the, it's telling a story, a picture of something. And then there's third, the drosh level. The drosh level is the more detailed study level. That's the principled level. Those are the exact truths that are coming forth. And then finally, there is the level we call the sod level or the esoteric or the mysterious level of Scripture. In this passage, we're introduced to all four of them. 
This passage has many examples of all four levels of it. And by beginning with the Torah from this, you can get this understanding. And as you go through the rest of the Torah and the rest of scriptures, you can discern and pick out these different elements to it. It's no different than, if you will, of knowing that a plant you know, has a root structure, it has a stem, it has a leaf structure, and then suddenly there comes a flower out of it with multiple colors, and the seed is born in that flower usually so that it can reproduce. Different levels of the plant, but they all are part of the plant. Well, the same thing could be said of the Torah. We have these different levels, and each one brings different features out about what God has done. Um, from the very beginning... And uh, I'm not making a pun here. From the very beginning, in the beginning, are the first words of the scripture, God is assumed to be in that position. It doesn't explain where God came from. It's explaining where you and I came from, where the universe that we understand came from. God is the assumption to begin with. And it states very clearly, God did this. And it gives us a basis to answer the question, well, where did we come from? You know, how did we get here? It gives us those initial answers. Now, before I go any further, I want to read the creation story. So I'm going to read all of chapter 1 and a little bit into chapter 2. And because from here comes the basis of much instruction. And just in the same way that we look at the trunk of the tree, everything is going to come out of that and stem out into the different branches. So follow along with me now as I read to you from Genesis chapter 1, uh, the first words that we have given to us in the Torah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into just one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth. And so it was. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. 
And God placed them in the expanse of heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to, sub and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, which, with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after the kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. And it shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which he had given life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that what he had, all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed on all their hosts. And by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he separated from all of his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made earth and heaven. Now, what I've read to you is just chocked full of a multitude of principles that affect our faith. As I mentioned to you before, there's the plain sense of the meaning of the text. There's the Remez level, the Drosh level, and the Sod level, or the mysterious level. Let me just hint a little bit at some of the things that we see here. Uh, from the plain sense of the meaning, the very first thing that God created was light. Light is energy. And the scientific world will tell you that the two things that we have in the universe, energy and matter, that energy had to come first. This is a little bit like the chicken and the egg. And the Bible answers the question. He says energy came first. And that's a very, very important thing. For most of mankind throughout our experience of life, we uh, don't have the ability to take energy and make matter out of it. That's what God did. Uh, what we do have is the ability to take matter and make energy out of it. Uh, for example, I take a log of wood and I light it on fire and use extreme energy of heat. 
And as a result, it produces more heat energy and light. It can produce light from the flame of the log. And it reduces the matter of the log down into an ash to a, a much, much less matter, just the residual part of it. And as you know, a log suddenly turns into just a small bit of ash when it's done. What we did was we took matter, we turned it back into energy, heat and light. Well, it's only in this generation that man has finally risen to the point, after eating of the knowledge of good and evil, that we can now finally take energy and turn it into matter. And in fact, this is part of small particle physics, where we've been able to take um, uh, small subatomic particles and hit them with incredible amounts of energy, and suddenly we produce matter. We can produce elements uh, of it. We're not producing gold yet, but they have been able to produce ferrite iron, uh, you know, as a result of it. And it's part of the story of that when we ate of the knowledge of good and evil, we became like one part of God, the scripture says to us. What part did we become like? We became like one part of the creator. The creator can make all of these things, and mankind is on its scientific thing, is trying to create things. You've heard of recent years of cloning of things and DNA, getting the exact structure and things like that. Man is finally getting to the point where we can do some of the more detailed things that God did from the very beginning as being the creator. Uh, in the teaching of the book of Deuteronomy, and it ties back into this in this regard, the book of Deuteronomy in the Hebrew is actually called Devarim, which means words. That's what we say. However, the same word means things. And part of the book of Deuteronomy is words are spoken and it turns into things. And that's what we hear in this creation story. God has spoken and things came to be. And so it's through the spoken word of God that God created things. You and I create things by our spoken word as well. And sometimes we create chaos and sometimes we create great things. But it's, it's the act of creation through the spoken word. The next thing that we should note uh, that was created was time. And for many, many years, the scientific community struggled as to whether or not time was another dimension or was part of the dimensions that we have here. And they finally have come to the conclusion that time is not a separate dimension. We live in three dimensions, and time is part of the creation that we have here. And that was clearly stated when God you know, created the first day. And the first day he defined as there was evening and there was morning. The Hebrew definition of time, and this is the definition the Bible uses throughout the scripture, is that a day begins at the evening and it concludes at the final light of the day or sets up the evening for the next day. And so the cycle of a day is based on that. Here in just recent years, and in fact I just heard this comment again in this last week, uh, somebody is standing up and saying, hey, a day is, doesn't begin in the evening, it begins in the morning. Obviously, they have not read, nor have they believed the words of Genesis uh, chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 lays this out in the definition. Just as it said that light was created first, and that this is the timing of a day, before we get into any of the other creation, you have to get those things straight. 
You have to get God's definition to it. Those that depart from these principles and definitions um, do so at their own peril uh, of interpreting things correctly. This is an example of what we call the drosh level, the principle, the exact truths uh, that come out of the scripture. The, uh, on the second day of creation, God created water. And water is absolutely essential for life, is the basic building block for life. This is where basic chemical compounds and pro the first processes will usually happen, um, you know, in a water form. We ourselves, uh, as human beings, the, the majority of us is really liquid. It's a, it's a form of water. Uh, that's in us. Uh, we're, we're not made up of other substances and chemicals. In fact, if, you were, if your body is ever taken and, and you're cremated, it, it'll come down to a little pile of ashes about that size, and it's just the chemicals that was in you. Everything that was forming you and making you who you are was how the water was holding it all together. And so water is the basis of life. And we begin to hear the description of how life begins to emerge on the planet. First of all, we have to separate the waters from the waters. And that's a very intriguing, and in fact, this is a, an example of what we call the mysterious or the esoteric level of what the scripture is. I don't know if you picked up on it, but as we went through the six days of the creating part, the Lord said it was good on every day except one. It was the second day that he does not say it was good. And this ties into one of the last verses that I read to you. In chapter 2, in verse 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens of the earth when they were created. The word, Hebrew word created there has six Hebrew letters. The second letter of that is the letter hey, and it's made small by the scribes. In other words, if you were looking at the Hebrew text and all the letters are the same size, the second letter of that word, they take the letter hey and make it very small. The letter hey, um, the meaning of the letter is that which comes forth, and it's like a picture of a door that's just ever so slightly open. It's just cracked open, and it's also the letter that is used in the Hebrew text to mean behold, or that which comes forth, or the glory of God. And um, the letter is made hey there to say, and this is the scribal teaching on this portion, that it was on the second day the glory of the Lord was diminished. What happened in the creating of the heavens and the waters of the earth, the expanse of heaven, that was not glorifying to God? We believe this is when... Hasatan understood God's plan of what he was going to do in the creation and what he was going to do with mankind, and he rebelled. He rebelled against God. He thought that uh, God shouldn't elevate man, which was lower than the angels, elevate us above the angels to be a partner with God, to be the bride uh, of God. And he rejected God's plan, and he fell. He and his angels fell. There was a diminishment within the heavens uh, for it. We believe this is the day, the actual day of the week of the creation, that Hasatan rebelled. And as a result, we don't see God saying that day was a good day. 
And we see in this uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, we see the scribal mark giving this teaching and hint to the teaching. This is, a, this is what we call the sod, or the mysterious, or the esoteric level of, of it as well. It goes on through the story and gets us to um, where we have a day four where we have the sun and the moon and the stars coming forth. Again, let me give you a principled level of what the Lord has given to us. We have some people running around in the Messianic movement teaching a teaching called Lunar Sabbath. Let me explain that to you just a little bit. They want to follow the cycle of the moon, and so when the new moon comes out, they use that as the count, the zero count, and then they count seven days, and on the seventh day, they call it a Sabbath. And they count another seven days, and they call it a Sabbath. Everything is anchored and synchronized to the new moon, and this is called Lunar Sabbath. We, on the other hand, teach the recurring Sabbath, that the Sabbath that came from the creation is the recurring count, that every seven days is Sabbath, is Sabbath, is Sabbath, and it, the original start started from creation, that every Sabbath is the testimony of the Creator, that He created the heavens and the earth every Sabbath. In fact, part of the instruction that we get, you shall keep the Sabbath to remember the God who created, that in six days he created the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. So you too will rest on the seventh day. This business of moving it over to the lunar synchronization is without basis and is, is not correct. Let me just look at the creation story. If the moon is emerging and is first seen on the fourth day, then the very first Sabbath that God blessed was three days after that event, and that does not constitute a Sabbath. Not three days after, seven days after is the Sabbath. And so this whole lunar Sabbath thing is flawed. You can correct that by just understanding Genesis 1 and following the principles that come forth from there. In day five, we had the animals, the birds, and the fish. In other words, we had mammals, we had living creatures breathing the air and uh, so forth. And then finally, we come to the big day of day six where man is created. Man was created in God's image. And the man that we're referring to that was created in God's image was Adam. <clears throat> Adam was created in the image of God. Now, most of us have heard uh, as a kind of an overview uh, teaching of spiritual truths that all men are created in the image of God. And from the standpoint of that we're all part of the creation, I absolutely agree with that statement. But when you emphatically use the words that we're all created in the image of God, you're saying something spiritual. And it's more than just the creation story. In particular, um, the, the, the descendants of Adam are no longer made in the image of God. Let me explain. In this Torah portion, going to Genesis chapter 5, because of what happened back at the garden, something was shifted on this spiritual thing about being made in the image of God. So let me read to you in chapter 5, verse 1, which is the latter part of our portion, where it says this about Adam and his generations. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man 
in the day that they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. If you recall, Cain and Abel also were descendants of, and man before that was called in the image of God. Was Man was in the image of God. However, with Seth and every man thereafter, we men were made in the image of Adam. And what it's really trying to do is bring out a spiritual truth here. If you're made in the image of God, you're like God. You're eternal like God. But when you're made in the image of Adam or like man, then you're subject to the things of man. Well, welcome to the world that we all live in. We are mankind. We are subject to the things of Adam. We're no longer the eternal creatures. Do you now see the need for why a man needs to be born again, to be born of the Spirit of God, if he intends to be the eternal creature that God wants us to be? Thus, we have the reason why the Messiah had to be dispatched to us, so that we could be born again. Uh, this is in the first teaching of the Torah. Do you remember in, in uh, John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came, uh, the religious man of his day, a spiritual man, uh, and he came and he talked to Yeshua privately at night about what Yeshua was teaching. And so he acknowledged Yeshua. That he, he, he knows that you're, you, you've been sent from God. You're, you, no man would teach the way you're teaching except he was sent from God, things like that. And immediately Yeshua says to him, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus couldn't understand that. He was thinking in the terms of the literal stuff. He was thinking at the Peshat level. And he said, how can, how can a man be born again? You can't go back in the womb, you, get, you know, so forth. And Yeshua said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, I'm, I'm talking about being born of the Spirit. Uh, and that which is born of the flesh is born of the flesh, and, but that which is born of the Spirit is of Spirit. And he questioned Nicodemus, uh, a very serious question. He says, Nicodemus, how is it that you are a ruler of this people? Which means you know these principles. You have studied these things. You're following God's laws and principles and truths in guiding and leading the people. How is it you don't know this? Well, I can tell you how Nicodemus doesn't know it. Because the world has been told that all men are made in the image of God. It's a lie. That's not true. That is not what the scripture says. The first man was Adam, the man, first man. He was made in the image of God. However, because of sin and introducing sin and darkness into the world spiritually, every man since then is made in the image of Adam. And that's our problem. We have death in us. And that has what has borne out to be true. We as mortals, we live for a certain number of years and then we die just like Adam did. Adam was told that in the day that you eat of that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. By the way, he ate of it. By the way, he died. And you and I are a product of that. Now, you and I didn't go and eat of the fruit. We didn't eat of the fruit and receive the curse of death upon us. But because we're made in the image of Adam, this is what comes with it instead of the life. Thus, the reason why the Messiah has been sent by the Father, so that if we believe in him, we might receive eternal life. We might be made in the image of God. Thus, we call it being born again 
of the Spirit of God. Here in this Torah portion are all of the basic principles of our faith and redemption. The story is laid out for us before us. Now there's another item that I want to make mention of, and that was the making of woman. Woman wasn't made out of the dust of the earth. Woman was made out of the parts of a man, which means that the original man apparently had both sexes in him somehow or another. But being alone, it was not good. He needed a partner, so God made a partner for him by taking some of the parts of him out, making, making another creature that was a partner now uh, with him for it. And from that comes the basis of marriage, the first definition of a man and a woman coming together, becoming one flesh. This is how we reproduce. Uh, this is how we're partners in life. This is how we form our, our covenantal marriage agreement uh, between us. It originated by definition from this Torah portion. Now, I make mention of that because uh, the things that we're teaching from are religious laws. These are principles and truths that we teach about the faith. In recent days, and in this nation in particular, uh, the government has decided to alter and change these religious laws. Uh, they want to make marriage possible for gays and homosexuals. And they want to redefine the definition of the covenant of marriage. And, uh, and the, the, the real fundamental problem is twofold. Number one is they're going contrary to what God has said what has been established for mankind. So they are taking issue with the creator and his definition of the created. And secondly, in particular in our country, we have a constitution of which the founding fathers specifically stated that there would be the freedom of religion in this constitution and that the government was not permitted to establish any religious law nor to infringe on the free exercise of any religion or religious law. And by them going in and redefining marriage as to the baseline as to what marriage is, you are messing with the religious law and you're violating the Constitution. You're establishing things that God did not establish and religion did not establish. And you're infringing now on the free exercise of our faith for those of us who believe in the God of creation, the God of Israel, and the Messiah, Yeshua. They are now infringing on that. They are violating the Constitution, their own word that they set up for us. This conflict, this redefinition of marriage. By the way, this isn't the first time the world has done this. It is very clear in the story of Noah, which is the next portion that we're going to see, that one of the things that brought about the judgment of mankind, worldwide judgment of mankind, was the phrase that they were marrying and giving in marriage. And they had redefined marriage from what God had done. They were marrying all kinds of things and doing all kinds of manner of things, which is not what God specified from the very beginning. And this was one of the indicators that God specifically notes that was part of the reason why God decided to judge the whole world by water. By the way, Yeshua specifically referring to the future, uh, to the future end days. 
says it will be like the days of Noah in that they will be marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, the very same trait, this very same issue that was in the days, the generation prior to the flood will be the same issue will be in the final generation before the judgment that comes by fire. So what we are observing today is certainly consistent with what was in the days of Noah before the flood and is, and is consistent with our understanding of these base laws of marriage, which come from the very first Torah portion. It is people who are absolutely contrary to God. When they are contrary to God, there's always one very strong spiritual indicator. They are taking issue with the first Torah portion. We have people who are godless, who want to deny that there's a creator and a created story. In all my lifetime, we've heard about the battle between evolution and creation. The men who support evolution do not believe in the creator God and in the first words of the scripture. They don't believe that he created this. Although the deeper and the deeper we get into the science of understanding the early beginnings of the earth, the story and the pattern that God has given us in Genesis 1 continues to bear out to be true with every scientific finding. Every one of them. And the evolutionists still want to deny the creator. Now let me tell you why they want to do it. You see, they want to discover and they want to announce what are the rules of the world and of life. And in fact, in a lot of cases, they want to make their own rules. They don't want God, with his authority and his position, to be able to say that this is the way it is and this is the way I made it and I've set the precedent and, and you need to follow the precedent that's already set. Those would be the principles of good uh, thinking, smart thinking, but they don't want to follow that. They don't want to give God that position, although God starts right off and says so. Uh, I want to give you a little example, you know, there's uh, about some of what this is about. You know, a lot of our youth, as they get done with high school, they go off to college. And I'm always concerned for these 18 to 22-year-olds who go off to these universities and the universities are filled with these professor types who, for the most part, are extremely liberal in their thinking, are not spiritually minded. Many of them are not. Many of them are atheistic and are agnostic at best. And they like to mock the things of the Bible. And they like to mock things of faith. And these kids come in here from the spiritual training they've gotten from their parents or from their local church or with their upbringing. And they come into these university classes and all of a sudden these people are challenging these very basic things. And one of the things that is in their thinking of why they do this is they want to set up a learning dynamic. In fact, this is their explanation for it. They want to build a learning dynamic where you trust the professor so that you can receive the full benefit of his instruction. And by the way, all teaching concepts teach this. That when, some, for example, when you come in and you want to learn from me, it is expected of you that you take a seat before me. You grant me a certain measure of authority to teach you. 
to share information with you. If you're standing up and you're not accepting, then learning's not going to take place. And, and by taking a seat before a teacher is a way of granting authority for the teacher to do it. And this is the learning dynamic of how things take place. If a student in that class suddenly stands up, having accepted that position, and begins to argue with the professor, let me tell you what will be happening in the college class. The kid probably will get kicked out of the college class because it's a violation of the code, of the understanding of what is to be supposed to be the learning atmosphere, the learning dynamic. And so the, the professors come in and they start the subject of about speaking against God and godly things and creation and things like that. And if a kid dare stands up, he's in violation of the code. He could be in trouble. He could be kicked out of the class. And even those that are attempting to do it, of course, it's a setup. It's a straw man kind of argument. They're dealing with people who don't really have a strong faith in Scripture, a strong faith of experience, of walking out the faith, lots of life experience to go along with it. They're standing up. They have twice as much life experience than they do. And so it becomes an overwhelming situation where they suppress uh, these youth. And there's a couple of movies that have come out. I think one is uh, God is Not Dead, I think is a movie that's come out that pictures this typical classroom situation. Now, I'm going to make an interesting statement to you that you're probably at first breath going to say, oh, Monty, I wish you hadn't said that. If you're in a class and you've taken a seat before a teacher then you should be respectful and hear what the teacher has to say. And you should not be objecting in his classroom and you should not be objecting in that place. Now, if you're outside the classroom in another form, then it's possible to have such dialogue. But if you're in the class and you're seated in the class, then you should be paying attention and you should not be objecting to what the authority figure that's speaking to you. Learning can't take place without that. Now, let me elevate that whole thing to what we're studying here. This is almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, telling you how this came, place came to be. You are sitting on his planet. And I can assure you that if you rise up against him, almighty God, and you say, oh, no, you're not the creator. You didn't do that. Your word is wrong. You stand up in the class, which is the earth. And you decide to argue <laughs> with the creator, the almighty God who created all things. Let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to get kicked out of the class. Let me say it more directly. You're going to lose your life. You will have no life. If the professor has the right to have his classroom and his authority to be respected, I can assure you that the creator and almighty God has just as much authority. I say this to those who are liberal-minded in thinking, that if you think that the classroom should be honored so that instruction can take place, I submit to you that you should be paying attention to what the Creator has to say when He's giving you instructions on how this whole place came to be. And rather than spending your energies on objecting and arguing against it, Maybe you should shut your mouth, open your ears, open your heart, and try to understand what he is trying to tell you and teach you. And then, oh, by the way, after you're 
done with this experience here in the earth and you're an eternal creature, then you can have whatever argument you want to have with them or whatever, but in another place, not here. Uh, it seems to me we sometimes forget that the authority, the honor, the esteem that God has that began with just being the creator. The created does not have the right to argue with the creator. It's a little bit like a jar arguing with the guy who formed the shape of the jar in the pottery, arguing with the, the guy who formed the shape and said, oh, I don't like the way you did it. You didn't do that right. It seems to me that that jar has no right to say anything about the, you know, his very existence came about as a result of the hands of the creator. And there is no position, there is no standing, there is no authority whatsoever to take issue with the Creator. That's part of the stuff that we forget about the creation story. But God doesn't forget it. In fact, in a multitude of times, in a multitude of times, when He gives His further instruction in the Torah, His commandments, He reminds us that He is the Creator. And innately, we should understand there's authority that comes with it, a certain right that comes with it, a responsibility to come with it. God has those rights, does carry out those responsibilities, is true to his word and what he does as creator. And we should not be disputing that or taking issue with that authority or his right in that regard. Now, maybe we don't understand all that he has said. And I would dare to say that's really what the case is with most people who object to this. They still don't understand what's going on here. And even I admit, while I received the instruction that I have here, I'm not sure I scientifically fully understand this, but I do know this, that if I were to gain the full and complete understanding, that the science that involved with this would not be in conflict with the words of the Creator, that eventually they all come together accurately, correctly together. And this business of trying to separate science out from spiritual things is sheer, unbelievable ignorance in my part on the scientific part. It has been the constant track of mankind as we've gained uh, knowledge in science that we keep coming back with each discovery, with each concept that has been proved out, that the biblical record was accurate in its depiction and description of those things. And as a result, you would think that after we've had this exceedingly great trend of truths coming together, you would think that the smarter we get, the closer we would get to the understanding of what God said to begin with. That is true of many men of faith, but it's not necessarily true of all men. And the reason why it's not true of all men is because some men choose to deny God and disagree with God and to uh, refuse to accept what God has said. And this is in a whole varieties of life uh, for us. Uh, on the seventh day, the scripture tells us that God made something called Sabbath. It was based on the six days of creation, that he ceased from his work. He rested, and it says that he blessed the Sabbath 
and that he sanctified it. He separated out the seventh day from the other six days. He made it a separate, distinct thing so that it, all of it constitutes a week, but it's six days of labor and then one day of rest. Six days of very good and one day of being blessed. And for us, the commandment of Sabbath that we get from the law of Moses, if I would remind everybody, Moses and the Lord specifically said when he gave the commandment of Sabbath at the Ten Commandments, remember to keep the Sabbath holy. It's called the commandment of remembrance. Why would we remember it at the, at the giving of the law? Is because it already was a commandment to begin with. And it's a commandment that comes from the creation. Adam knew about this. All of the descendants of Adam knew about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the thing that marked and reminded the men and all of the creation that God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to take note of something spiritually just as significant that was born out of this. Um, let me see if I can find the exact uh, verse here for it. Um, Here it is. Chapter 4, at the conclusion of chapter 4, it gives us a little bit of, of the place of Abel and men have now been born of um, Adam and Eve and so forth. And there in verse 26, and it says, And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, when we hear that expression, men calling upon the name of the Lord, that is about mankind asking for God's salvation. That's us prayer. That's prayer. That's talking to God and specifically calling upon God and his authority, his power, his resources to assist you in your life. Men began to first call upon the name of the Lord, the descendants of Seth. Seth was made in the image of Adam, and the descendants of Seth began to call upon the name of the Lord. Thus, we have those same things. So in the same way that I say to you that we're all made in the image of Adam, we also call upon the name of the Lord just as those descendants did as well. So it's a natural thing that we would call upon the name of the Lord. All these principles are in here laid out in this first Torah portion. And it's describing how God brought about the world as we understand it. I need to also um, uh, share with you a little bit more about <clears throat> God's commands. Because God's commands not only about Sabbath... <clears throat> but begin in this portion. For example, we know the command that he gave to Adam when he was in the garden. It says, do not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a very explicit command, negative commandment. Don't do it. Well, as you know, man did. And we have the first transgression of God's word. We have the first sin. And sin brings about darkness, brings about death. Had they not done it, they would have had life, and they would have been in the light, and they would have stayed in the garden where God was at. But they introduced sin. They violated God's word. And that's the basis of all sins. You go against what God has said. And, uh, by the way, God is, doesn't think that your sin is smart or intelligent, and it's no excuse you know, for it. Uh, the fact that you would go against God's word is simply uh, speaking to how ignorant you are. Uh, 
and that you have transgressed, you know, what the Lord has said. And by the way, you've also uh, uh, um, gone against and rebelled against his authority. And what he said, you've decided you're above God and that you know better than God. And that was the whole temptation that was in the garden. It was Hasatan was telling Eve that, you know, she could be smarter than God. You know, that I know God said this, but you'll not die if you eat of it. You'll find out it tastes good. And it was the temptation to do something contrary to God that brought about that whole story. As to whether or not it was an apple or whatever, that, that's not the important part of the thing. What is important is that God said, and they went contrary to what God said. That is what we understand sin to be. But there's also another commandment that God gave at this point. Uh, which is the dominant commandment uh, above all things. And it was the commandment to be fruitful and multiply, to live. All of God's commands, all of his positive commands are for the one purpose, to cause your life to be full and abundant, to be all that it can be, just like a plant, uh, you know, when it starts growing, um, you water it, you nurture it, because you want the plant to grow up to a great, great plant and bear much fruit. I mean, I'll take you back to my experience of growing tomatoes. I take these little plants, I put them in the ground, and I'm, I look at them, and I look at them like they're so tender. I mean, so many, so many things could hurt them. I put cages around them. I'm concerned about the bugs on them. I'm concerned about birds and other creatures, and I've got a little rabbit that runs around uh, every once in a while in the backyard, and I'm afraid he's going to go over there and eat that thing. Um, and I'm trying to protect it and nurture it because I need it to grow up and to become strong. Once it becomes strong, then it kind of can defend itself. But then I want it to grow up strong, and I want it to produce not just a lot of leaves and lots of vines. I want it to produce lots of fruit. I want to see all the blossoms fill out and become fruit. And I want to see the fruit become large and I want to see it turn and ripen and so that I can pluck that fruit and I can enjoy uh, the, the taste and the flavor of the product of the plant. Well, the same thing is true of what God's intention is toward us, but I can assure you my love of growing tomatoes is nothing about what his love toward us is. He sees us as young and tender, he want, and, and I'm talking about even in our spiritual life. He wants us to grow, become stronger, fill out, become strong enough so you can bear fruit. And he wants us to be fruitful and multiply and to increase and to occupy the whole earth. As you know, the enemy has come in and has caused a great disruption to this plan. And instead of being fruitful and multiplying, well, we procreate but we also slaughter one another. It's a little bit like growing up a bunch of tomatoes and then taking the tractor and running over them. I mean, that's pretty much a description of what the world is like. And that's not at all what God purposed or what he wants to do. I use this metaphor about the garden, about tomato plants, because, you see, that's what God started off with to begin with. He started a garden, and that's a beautiful picture to explain how God wants to wants to uh, have things grow and increase and so forth. It's the same thing that every man does if he grows a garden. And the whole idea of us getting to the kingdom is to restore the garden, is to get us in, back into that garden again where we're born in the, in the spirit of God, 
that we live eternally like God originally intended, so that we might be in that garden where it will be fruitful and multiply, to where that the kingdom, the characteristic description of that kingdom will be there will be no end to the increase. And the phrase, no end to the increase, is the natural result of mankind obeying what the Lord says and being fruitful and multiplying. Thus, God says there'll be no end to the increase. The same, the same pictures tie together from the original garden story, from the original first Torah portion, all the way to the end of the book where it talks about the messianic kingdom uh, coming to be. Now, um, I basically have just laid out kind of a conceptual thing to this for this Torah portion. Let me assure you that if you continue to study this portion, there's much, much more to be, to be taught and to learn from it. In fact, um, of the different commentaries that I have, uh, that I love on this, uh, I have whole books just on this Torah portion. There is that much to learn out of this Torah portion. But for purposes of our Torah study this year, I introduced the Torah to you. I introduced now Bereshit to you uh, in the beginning. Um, and, of course, um, I don't have time to develop it, but if you, as Messianics you know that the Messiah is first introduced to us in this portion, in the very first verse, Genesis 1, in the Aleph and Tav, that is there. And John, in the beginning of his gospel, says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and it was with God. Um, and it goes right back to Genesis 1.1, and he ties right in. The Messiah is in this as well, and very much a part of what is going on in the principles and the teachings of what is in this portion. For those of us who are messianic, I encourage you in your messianic faith to find the Messiah in the Torah beginning with Genesis 1-1 and continue through in your study this year as we go through the Torah portion. Amen? All right, let's, uh, let's conclude our portion for this week. Join with me now in prayer. Father, thank you for Bereshit. Thank you for the beginning of teaching of the Torah again. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your instructions. And I would ask, Lord, that with this portion, that we would get a new sense, a new picture of you as creator, almighty God, having the authority, Lord, that we have come before you to receive instructions, not to object to you, Lord, but to receive all that you have to say and teach us and help us, Lord, to prepare our hearts to follow all of your instructions, all of your commandments, to walk in the light and to walk in your truths. And I ask that you do this to edify my brethren and encourage them and strengthen them so they might grow up and fulfill the good word to be fruitful and multiply, even spiritually, so that they might bear fruit and bring glory and honor to your name. We ask all of this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. V.
خونه bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.